The reading this morning is from the book of Esther, which if you went to the Psalms in the centre of the Bible and turn left, you'd find it. It's on page 504 in the small ones and 708 in the large print Bibles. And we're going to read up to chapter 6, verse 12, which sort of stops in the middle of the action, but Wellesley had to draw a line somewhere or else we'd read the whole of the book. So Esther chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favour, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence he was filled with rage against Mordecai nevertheless Haman restrained himself and went home calling together his friends and Zeresh his wife Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth his many sons and all the ways the king had honoured him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. That night the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing's been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. 
His attendants answered, uh, Haman's standing in the court. Bring him in, said the king, or the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honour, let them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on the horse back through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief thanks very much Rob let's pray shall we as we look at that together Father in heaven as we come to your word now we pray that you'd help us not just to learn things about you but to learn to love you with all of our heart soul strength and mind and we pray it for Jesus sake Amen Well, we began the series by asking this question, where is God in all of this? You see, sometimes life feels so messy and sometimes God feels so distant. And with all the the brokenness around us in life that we see on the news, on our TV screens, and even in our own lives, we're left asking the question, where's God in all of this? No doubt the same question that was being asked in the days of Esther, where we find God's people in exile, away from the promised land, living under the brutal dictatorship of Xerxes, king of Persia. Yet, yet, here is the teaching point that has come week after week through this book. Even when God feels absent, even when it feels like life is descending into chaos around us, God is in fact very present, quietly at work, behind the scenes, preserving his people for his glory. You see, for all the pomp and the power of Xerxes, he's not the one in charge here. God is. And throughout the book of Esther, we see the hidden hand of God at work, ordering the lives of his people for their good and for his glory. It's a reality that's summarized so Beautifully for us in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where we learn this. Paul says, and we know that in all things, not some things, all things, and that includes the the dark and desperate moments of life, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And what is that purpose? It is to make you and me more like the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, before we pick up the story in chapter 5, let's recap where we've come from. We began this journey through the book of Esther back in chapter 1 and 2 with the story of two queens. We had the fall of Queen Vashti and we had the rise of Queen Esther, who has come to her royal position for such a time as this. And then last week we had the story of two plots. The plot to assassinate King Xerxes, foiled as we heard by Mordecai. And the plot to annihilate God's people, instigated by Haman. And that's where we hit the pause button last week with brave Esther preparing to go before the king and to plead on behalf of her people, even if it would cost her her life. Have a look back, chapter 4, verse 16. These were the words we left with last week. When this is done, that's the three days of, of fasting and pleading with God. When this is done, says Esther, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And it's at this point in the story that everything slows down. You see, the first four chapters of the book of Esther cover nine years of history in Persia. The next four chapters, chapter 5 through the end of chapter 8, cover just two days. Two days that are absolutely crucial to the life of God's people. Two days that are centered around two banquets. But as you can see in verse 1, the story doesn't begin in the banqueting hall. It begins in the king's hall before the threatening throne of Xerxes. This is what we read in verse 1 of chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. Now, the royal robes that Esther put on are not intended to seduce the king. They're designed to remind him that she is the one, she is the queen whom he has chosen. And so in all her royal splendor, Esther approaches the inner court of the palace, no doubt head bowed and heart beating double time within her chest. How will the king react to her approach? Well, if the book of Esther was a film, this would be the perfect point to take an advert break, to build the tension. But thankfully there's no adverts in the word of God, because the answer comes quickly in verse 2. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. The relief must have been tangible, mustn't it? All those years of distress, three years of fasting, three days of fasting and pleading with God. And she goes before the king. How's it going to end up? Well, all is well. In fact, not only is the king going to listen to her, the king promises to deliver on her request. That's what we learn in verse 3. Then the king asks, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. Now that's classic king speak, for whatever you want, it'll be yours. I'm the king, and I can deliver this for you. Yet for whatever reason, Esther doesn't think that the king's hall is the best place to raise the issue. So instead she invites the king and Haman to the first of two banquets. And to be fair, as you listen to the story being read, banquet number one feels like a bit of a non-event, doesn't it? 
The king asked the same question in verse 6. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. But it's still not the right time for Esther to reveal her hand. And so another banquet is prepared the following day. Now, if you're anything like me, you're left asking the question, what's the point then of banquet number one? And the simple answer to that question is, I don't know. But what I do know is that we learn a lot more about Haman because of it. Have a look at verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. Happy that he has been included in this prestigious gathering. But as he leaves, when he saw Mordecai at the king's gates and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. You see, Haman is a man who wears his heart on his sleeve. And what an ugly heart it is. It's full of pride and arrogance. He brags about everything he's got, verse 11, his wealth, his family, his status. He brags about being invited to both these banquets, verse 12. But verse 13, there is a blot on the landscape of Haman's proud heart. All of this gives me no satisfaction. He's got all this, but he says, I get no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Haman is a man who lives for the praise of people and he's getting none from Mordecai. No praise, no recognition. And you know what? He doesn't like it. As one commentator says, Haman is a case study in what happens in our hearts when idols are challenged. He made public recognition his idol and the result was that as long as he was receiving adulation, he felt great. However, when the achievement of his goal was challenged, he responded by lashing out in rage and seeking to feed his idol through boasting. There was a void at the center of his life that no amount of success could fill. It's easy, isn't it, to shake our collective head at Haman, think to ourselves what a piece of work he is. But before we do, there's something that we need to realize, which is this. There's a bit of Haman in us all. Whether we like to hear that this morning or not, there is a bit of Haman within us all. Pride is lurking in the heart of every human being. It's the dandelion of the soul. And if it's not rooted out, if pride goes unchecked, it can do incredibly damaging and wicked things. Have a look at verse 14. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. And so as we come to the end of chapter 5, it looks like Haman is calling the shots, but the reality, of course, is very different. Because God himself, the one who sits on the throne of the universe, has other plans for Mordecai and indeed other plans for Haman. And so while Haman sleeps, God is quietly at work. Did you see that? Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. That night the king could not sleep 
So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Last week I used that little phrase, divine coincidences, to to try and help us understand that God is at work in the smallest details. And we see it here again in chapter 6. It just so happens, the night before Mordecai is to be impaled on a 75-foot pole, the king can't sleep. And it just so happens that his chosen bedtime reading is the last 12 years of the rule and reign of Xerxes, enough to put anyone to sleep. And it just so happens that as that book is opened up, it falls open on the chapter that records the story of when the assassination attempt on his own life was foiled. And it just so happens that Mordecai was the hero of that story. Isn't it wonderful when you see the hidden hand of God at work quietly behind the scenes? And so the next morning, Xerxes wakes up bright and early and he wants to put things right. He wants Mordecai to be honoured for what he did in saving his life all those years ago. And at that very moment, Mordecai, who was also up nice and early that day, yet for very different reasons, walks in. And you can't script this, can you? This, this is heavenly timing. As, 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 as Haman walks in, Xerxes is talking to one of his attendants about what he's going to do. Haman is, is entering there to, to get the stamp of approval. He wants the authority to have Mordecai executed. But before he can make his request, the king speaks in verse 6. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, Haman, being the proud man he is, he can't see beyond himself, can he? The king must be talking about him, thinks Haman. And so he dreams up the most, the most lavish public ceremony he can think of in verse 7 to 9. For the man the king delights to honor, let them bring in a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor, and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And you can imagine Haman smiling to himself as he, as he soaks up this adulation in his own mind. But then his whole world comes crashing in around him. In verse 10, talk about a kick in the teeth. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gates. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. And of course, Haman can do nothing but obey. He came with the intention of wanting Mordecai killed and he leaves leading Mordecai out on the king's horse dressed in the king's robes. How the tables have turned. And the contrast in verse 12 is a beautiful one. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. Mordecai, a picture of humility as he returns to his day's work. Haman, a picture of pride. 
his ego bruised as he flees the scene in grief. Now, I don't think we're meant to rejoice here in the humiliation of Haman, but we are meant to rejoice in the hidden hand of God. Quiet at work behind the scenes, turning the tide of human history and preserving his people for his glory. And you know what? If you stop for long enough to reflect upon your own life, I don't think you'll have to look too long before you see the hidden hand of God at work. Whether it's in a hospital in Bangkok and physical life is preserved, or whether it's in a car park in Cambridge where I came to faith in Jesus Christ 19 years ago, the hidden hand of God is at work in this world and in your lives and all the praise belongs to him. We know, says the Apostle Paul, in all things, God is at work for the good of those who love him. Well, by now, Haman is back at home with his head in his hands, bringing his family up to speed with all that's been happening. But if he thought things were getting bad, they're about to get even worse as the second banquet begins. Have a look at verse 14. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Before he's really had a chance to reflect on what's happening to him, he's dragged off to banquet number two. And for the third time, the king asks Esther the same question, verse two, as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And this time Esther responds in line with what has been promised, have a look at verse 3 and 4. If I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. The king, as you can imagine, would have been probably a mixture of being stunned, bewildered and angry. Who is it who's out to get his queen? And by this point, Haman must have been squirming in his seat as Esther lifts her hand and points across the table with those fateful words in verse 6. An adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. And in that moment, Haman's whole world comes crumbling down around him. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. How the tide has turned. Only two chapters ago, Esther approached the king in fear because of Haman. Now Haman falls in fear at the feet of Esther. And as he does... In verse 8, the king walks back in. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banqueting hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And so the same attendants who had hurried Haman into the banquet just moments before and now hurrying him out with a bag over his head to his place of execution. 
And the irony is quite incredible, isn't it? In verse 9 and 10. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reached into a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Isn't it an incredible turn of events? At the end of chapter 5, Haman has his pole set up at the, at the bottom of his garden. A pole to have Mordecai impaled on. Yet at the end of chapter 7, he's impaled on that very pole that he had set up. As a lasting reminder of what happens to those who set themselves up in opposition against God. In the world of Ella Fitzgerald, what a difference a day makes. Or in the case of Mordecai and Haman, what a difference two days make. Haman is humiliated, exposed and judged. Mordecai is saved, honoured and exalted to the top seat at the king's table. It is one of the great reversals that we find within the word of God. And of course it points forward to the great reversal brought about by the coming of Jesus Christ. After centuries of waiting for the promised Messiah, the King to come, after three years of public ministry, after six hours of agony on a cross, the world was turned upside down by Jesus Christ. You see, just like in Haman's day, evil thought it was winning. Satan thought he had conquered when Jesus was nailed to the cross. But wonderfully, as God does again and again throughout his word, he has turned the tables. And you see, if you're a Christian here this morning, you've got a story, a unique story of how God has turned the tables in your life, of how he has radically turned your world upside down for eternity in the most glorious way imaginable. Have a look at these words from Colossians chapter 2 and listen out for the big reversals. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. You were dead, spiritually cut off from God, but Christ made you alive. It's the reversal that comes about in the gospel. He forgave us all our sins having cancelled the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. We stood condemned before God. Now through Christ, we sit here maybe this morning free and wonderfully forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, it's at the cross where Satan was defeated. It's at the cross where the Lord Jesus is exalted. It is at the cross where proud people are brought low. And it's at the cross where humble hearts are lifted high. And so I must ask you, as you stand at the foot of the cross this morning, as you contemplate your position before God, how's your heart? Are you proud? Dismissive of God like Haman? Or are you humble and accepting of the one who came to bear your sin and turn your world upside down in the most glorious way? 
in whose life will you place your hands? Yours or his? The one who holds the entire cosmos in his hands.